directed actors? Um, John Singleton. I don't know. That's a great question. I that would be actually awesome if John Singleton directed that. But I would be surprised. Um, I can't recall, but I mean, it is just such a zeitgeist of the mid '90s where the good guys, you know, uh, is that have Devin Sawa? Uh, that is um, Johnny Lee Miller, oh, who would shit. later go on to marry Angelina Jolie, who's also the co-lead in this movie. You have Matthew Lillard as like a super cool trans-friendly punk rock guy who like wears naked uh, or a uh, punk rock person who wears you know uh, naked aggression shirts. Like it, it, they're playing these ridiculous video games, and but that's hackers. Matthew um, Lillard had a great '90s. Matthew Lillard is legitimately one of uh, the most interesting actors. Like you have Scream and then you have him in Hackers, two of some of the best movies in the 90s. And Scooby-Doo, his best role. SLC Punk. SLC, SLC Punk. Punk. Like yeah. he, he really like, uh, he has an interesting career and I think he elevates a lot of his roles, especially in Wing Commander. Oh my God, he's just amazing. <laughs> All of his Freddie Prince Jr., you know. So... Uh, speaking of Wing Commander, Evan, have you seen Pearl Harbor? No. Have you ever seen it in your life? I have seen uh, scenes of it on TV. Okay. That's pretty much it. So, like, I, I, I understand the tone. I watched probably, like, an hour of it on TV. Barely remember any of it and turned it off for a reason. Um, If you had to explain the movie to someone based on your knowledge of it, what would it be? Uh... Somebody, uh, well, you know, it's Pearl Harbor. It's going to get attacked at some point in this movie, so, you know, be prepared for that. It's like, the do you think that's the Titanic. end or the beginning or the middle? Where I, would that be? I would assume it's the end. Like, that would be you like would a assume big, that. that's a great assumption. The big thing. What if, I know some people want it, it I like, from what's flashing in my head, is like some sort of like Captain American wanting a dance sort of thing. And, um, or like, you know, ask, not really Captain America. And mm-hmm. then some bombs, you know, start. You well, know, like you'd, you'd think that the ending would be, you know, the, the ending of Pearl Harbor, you know, this 10 minute event that was really devastating, yeah. obviously. But you'd think that the movie would kind of start wrapping up afterwards. Yeah. At about like two hours into the movie. And you're like, okay, cool. This is a great you know, ending, okay, we finally sort of concluded a bunch of storylines, mm-hmm. and then it's another hour. Yeah. And Wait, really? That was my, <laughs> yeah, dude, that was among Christ. my least favorite parts of this movie was like, you know, I finished this very late last night, and it was about 11 <laughs> o'clock when I was like, oh, cool, it's the end of Pearl Harbor, like, they, you know, they survived, oh, this is a bummer, and, you know, FDR is going to say something. And then it goes on for another hour. And I was like, that was the most heart-wrenching part of the movie for me was the added hour that was unneeded. Yep. Uh, It is... If you were to go by three-act structure, the second act of this movie would have to be the attack on Pearl Harbor. And it comes an hour into the movie. It lasts an hour. And then the finale of the movie is another hour. Fortunately, or unfortunately, the script doesn't really have any structure. It's one movie for the first hour, a second movie for the second hour, and a third movie for the final hour. Um, honestly, when I was 8th, ninth grade, I had this DVD. Fuck yeah. I would start 
at the part and I would watch it regularly, like every week or two. I would start at the part where the Japanese started bombing Pearl Harbor <laughs> and I would stop when the bombing was done. Like that's all that was like that, your masturbatory scene, like, you know, renting like a random like original sin with Antonio Banderas and Angelina Jolie. Not just a written name a random movie, you know, specifically. <laughs> I there was some kid in uh, uh what's it called where it's like you're in the reserves but you're a high schooler uh anyways uh r-a-c-c whatever uh reagan youth something like that uh he gave me shit for it in high school at like freshman year being like so you only like the part where americans get killed and i was like well yeah (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's the best part of the movie. It's the only action part of the movie. Like, it's the only... It's what it's been building towards. Because, you know, to Michael Bay's credit, he's, you know, trying to craft a movie full of Americana and, you know, familiarity with these, like, archetypes of characters and this, you know, engrossing you into the time period in the 40s. And then juxtaposed against that is, you know, Japan... And, or you know the uh, the Japanese Empire, and then of course Kerry uh, Haruyuki uh, Tagawa, who is uh, um, uh, soon uh, or uh, Shang Soon in Mortal Kombat shows up, which oh, is awesome. I didn't make he that was, connection. Yeah, he was one of the like cohorts of the uh, the big you know general, um, oh, and uh, that took me out of the movie, and I was like, oh. I Your hope that we get more. Yeah, is mine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I was expecting that the whole time and found myself dozing a little bit through it um, because of that. But well, you see, the first hour doesn't matter because it's just the most dog shit, straightforward love story D- you'll disagree. ever hear. Disagree. What? <laughs> I think it's it's it is dog shit. Yes. Um, there's two separate love stories though. There's the love between two friends who uh, become brothers in a sort of way. And then it's the love with Rafe's character, uh, or Rafe, who's Ben Affleck in this movie, with uh, 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 Beckinsale, Kate Beckinsale's character as the Mm -hmm. nurse. And in fact, they were the three co-leads. Randomly, you know, you have uh, Danny, who's Josh Hartnett, and you have Rafe, who's Ben Affleck, and then you have the wretch that is both of those names in this movie and both of those actors in this movie. Um, but then you have Kate Beckinsale, who's like the nurse, who's, you know, part of the Air Force base that they're all sort of hanging out at, who's romantically linked with Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. And I think during, she's dating Ben Affleck. Yeah. They're, they're engaged or date. I don't know. I, I get don't... Armageddon and then this confused because they're both kind of. Uh, I think he. No, I guess he doesn't propose to her because the proposal is spud from uh, train spotting proposes to a seventeen-year-old. Yeah, that because Michael Bay has a thing for uh, character actors fucking teenagers. Which, with his like farty stutter, which by the way, uh, (laughs) trademark my band name, (laughs) farty stutter, farty stutter, spud farty stutter. That actor is so awesome. Like I would love my ringtone to just be the farty stutter. Like he has an amazing cadence to those um that is my favorite really hard to stutter in a different accent too oh i can only imagine um i couldn't stutter in american and he's what scottish yeah 
Yeah, that's very true. Well, I mean, he's one of the most interesting characters in the movie, and he's a side character. Like, his, he also has sort of an arc where he, you know, spoilers, but his, you know, wife-to-be, his fiance dies. And that was, like, sort of a sad part, because you actually are fond of this character that Spud plays. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry I don't, you know, remember your name off the top of my head, uh, actor. It's something stupid in European. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. It's like, ben ben Shapiro's <laughs> joining our, uh, our podcast today. <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I'm Scottish and Irish, and the Scots and the Irish have the worst fucking names. I don't know, Shearsha Ronan's pretty cool. Cheer, Sharona. <laughs> uh, it's fuck. Why can't I think of it? Uh, it's like what you'd name a giant from a King Arthur story. His name is like BFG. <laughs> no, it's not BFG. Hang on. It's like Andre. Yeah, class, Andre? classic Irish like Gaelic name. Or just is like it, BFG. They're like jolly it's a normal green. person's name with like okay. twelve extra letters. Okay. Oh, I think it's like three extra letters. Hang on. That is an interesting thing with like Gaelic names. Uh, like I had a customer when I was a barista uh, who her name is spelt like C O Ban. S I O B H A N. Shivan. Siobhan. Siobhan? Oh, yeah. I've been saying that shit the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) Which is okay. Maybe they, maybe some pronounce it differently. But yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's also very beautiful. It is a lovely name for sure. Also, I'm just going to say if my ancestors were uh, dumb enough to rely completely on potatoes, shouldn't rely on names. That was a bad joke. Sure. Let's cut that out. Michael's got a brother named Spud, so, I mean. Wow. <laughs> and he's got Scottish, that's true. His dad's Scottish. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> By the way, uh, do you guys want to do an intro? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> at some point, we're going to introduce how this is the Bulgara Tours. Today, we're talking about Pearl Harbor. Uh, this the is movie the... or the event? The uh, fictionalized event or the movie or the real event? And What do you think would be more entertaining? Um, I'd be down to throw down some facts about um, the real Pearl Harbor, but uh... probably more fun than this movie. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about uh, the filmographies of directors who work primarily in genre cinema, and we discuss whether their films are worthy of being elevated to auteur status or not. Or we don't really do that, but that's kind of the idea, and we'll get there eventually. I think he's an auteur of shit. By the way, Spud's name is Ewan Bremner. Bremner. Ewan. Ewan. <laughs> Ewan. It's kind of like Evan, but dumber. Like I said. <laughs> like somebody with a slur. <laughs> somebody stinks. Ewan. Like Ewan. guy trying to say my name. Ewan. 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 Also, Michael Shannon's in this movie. Uh, yeah, that was random. <laughs> I had not seen this movie in... Since probably 2004, and Michael Shannon hadn't really done anything at that point, but holy fuck, is it distracting. He is, for a reason I can only explain as it was made in the early 2000s, Bleach Blonde. Uh, Yeah. He's a Hawaiian surfer. In this movie? Yeah. 
And his name isn't Goose because I think that would be copyright infringement his name was like on Top Gun or something. No, stupid. it's it's Goose. I was watching with subtitles because I was watching with my girlfriend who's deaf. Uh, mm. It's not Goose G O O S E because copyright infringement. It's Goose G O O Z. What? <laughs> that, is, that is so mind blowing. I would love to do a uh, an analysis with Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon, if you were listening, please come and talk about your role in this movie. Also, doesn't he play kind of a stoner character in that movie? What is it, Son of Jesus or something like that? With uh, Samantha Morton and uh, Jack Black and I haven't seen that, but that sounds awesome. It's actually, it's yeah. not a bad movie. It's huh. it's it's just a it's a movie about. Um, uh, a couple that are like heroin addicts or something like that. It's like one of those like deep sort of films. I guess it was well reviewed, huh. but it also Seems has like Michael Shannon who plays this like kind of stonery dude who always wears a robe. That it's sounds like, like a Michael Shannon yeah, role. That sounds like he just showed up on set the, and was just kicking it. There you go. It's the first time I ever saw him. I was like, I like this guy. And then I saw him as General Zod, and I'm like, he's got range. Yeah, he, yeah, and that Ice he does. Man, of course, Iceman's. Oh, I mean, he he's one of those amazing character actors who elevates every single script given to him because he he's just um, he's captivating. There's something like mysterious and sort of spooky, but also like uh, he's a little teddy bear at the same time. It's weird. He's notoriously kind of standoffish but friendly. Uh, He's famous for taking the Brown Line, which I lived on and lived on the Brown Line track, uh, not on the track itself, of course. But that was the train I I commuted on when I lived in Chicago. I thought the Brown Um, Line was like a euphemism for like, you know, a sex club. Like he was on the Brown Line. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I knew him in the dark. Uh, But he notoriously is one of the few actors that actually takes the train and... Every day I hoped I would see him. But instead, just the normal shit you see in Chicago. Like, uh... Mike. Snow. Ice. Murders. <laughs> That's the red line. Candyman. Uh, red line and the blue line for any Chicago people listening. Uh, every Windy, person... Windy City represent? Dude, every Chicago person has a red line story. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's an equivalent. I also lived on the red line at a different point, and uh, like Terrence Malick in the Thin Red Line, which this clearly was trying to sort of or relate to. I forget who it is. I don't think it's Terrence Howard. But last year there was a TV show called Red Line about oh. a cop shooting on the red line. That I know a couple people who worked on that. Oh. It sounded like a kind of cheesy show, but they said it. You know, people treated them good. So oh. there's that. Right on. But, yeah, the actual red line is fucking insane. It goes from the very furthest south part of Chicago to the very furthest north part. Hmm. Uh, And there are multiple places where there were, like, mental health facilities Hmm. that were closed down in the 70s. And uh, there's still some outpatient treatment there. So there's tons of people with mental health issues riding the train and tons of people who live in uh, areas of Chicago that have been left behind. And it gets weird. I can only imagine. (laughs) Um, You know what's also kind of weird? 
Hmm. How evident it is you guys really do not want to talk about Pro Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. I mean, yeah. I'm getting super fascinated about Chicago Paco, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is way more captivating than this movie. Also um, sounds like a great um, uh, TV show idea. Chicago, Chicago Paco? Paco uh, <laughs> you're to... a Cubano boy. <laughs> there was a restaurant when I was a kid called Paco's Tacos that when I went to go visit my grandma out there, we'd always take a picture out front of uh, I think I might still have one somewhere. But, Evan's right. We should talk about the movie that people yeah, <laughs> want to hear us talk about. Uh, well, it's funny. I have a great memory of this movie. It was, uh, let's see, my parents had been divorced for a couple of years. I was dropped off at the movie theater with my sister to mm-hmm. see this wholesome Pearl Harbor movie. And it. Uh, I remember not enjoying it then. Uh, unbeknownst, I don't think it was related to the divorce or anything like that. I think I had more of a visceral reaction to this than my parents' divorce because this movie is so miserable. Uh, everything about this movie is miserable. Um, kind of on that note, I mean, I liked it more than you do. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's that's kind of shocking. Uh, I think the romance is dog shit. I think the action kind of works. Uh, and... I was surprised that they're completely inaccurate uh, about a lot of the things with the Japanese fleet, but they did try to do at least the tiniest amount of layering to them so that they aren't just complete others. Yeah, it didn't have the Top Gun effect where, I mean, again, speaking of Top Gun, this movie also borrows a lot from Top Gun, but... Um, in regards to what you're talking about, like instead of having their faces covered with this like obscure, you know, helmet of some kind, you do see some of the pilots. And but... the generals and admirals don't seem to really want the war. It They talk about how they don't have oil reserves and they talk about how they're worried that they're going to awaken a sleeping giant. Well, I think they were just wanting to have a preemptive strike to say, hey, don't fuck with us. Like, we're doing our own thing over here. Um, well, but I felt like I didn't remember any of that from watching it as a teenager. Hmm. I just remembered the Americana bullshit. Yeah. Um, and so that was an interesting return. Hmm. Um Dan Carlin, actually, as we're recording this, has been doing the hardcore history Mm -hmm. on this era, and he goes into everything that's going on with Japan at this time far better than we ever will, because we're not historians. But uh, to a point, Japan did feel kind of trapped into, like, having to be forced to make this attack and trying to cut us off before we destroyed them. Uh, so while they get the historical facts wrong in this movie, at least they have the overall vibe, Mm -hmm. right? Which I think is more important. Um, and that was surprising to me because the one actual cultural takeaway I learned from this movie at the time was something that I would later learn was a racial slur, Mm -hmm. uh, between this movie and South Park, I didn't realize that. Jap for Japanese person was considered derogatory. And um, my friend freshman year of high school was 
Gen uh, from Japan eventually had to be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) Holy smokes. Yeah. Uh, Because, I mean... Well, it's said casually enough that it's almost like a phrase that all of the characters are saying that you're like... Like, I could see that being confusing to an adolescent where, you know, they're saying it freely and you're like, okay, I guess that was just like a turn of phrase at that point when really it's kind of a demeaning, like, sort of shitty statement. Yeah, it doesn't have the cultural implication that, say, the N-word does, but to that community, it has the same overall effect. And It's a dismissal of someone... So again, watching it again, just how frequently and heavily they're laying that out there. It was pretty impressive. I agree. And I was kind of, uh, I was surprised that it didn't go into the Japanese internment, um, bullshit that would be, you know, put into effect after this. I mean, I think everyone, again, not a historian whatsoever, but I believe that people were getting suspicious of Japanese Americans at this point, especially in Hawaii around Pearl Harbor. There was a lot of, I think there was a a big Japanese population. Weird scene with the dentist who doesn't seem to know that he's speaking the Japanese intelligence. Yeah. That was sort of strange. I didn't understand that like uh, for a second because like, so they were randomly cold calling what they, who they knew to be Japanese, Japanese, uh, like citizens on Hawaii who they would just talk to about like the weather and what, you know, where, you know, bases were and stuff like that. That just seems strange. I I don't know. I I feel like that was either them implying that there was a spy and then that subplot might've been cut out. Yeah. That's what I was thinking too. Is like, you know, again, it, it also aids in that weird paranoia of like, um, I think Bay even presents it kind of ambiguous not to think that, you know, not to say that he thinks too much about shit, but I feel like that was purposely ambiguous of in a way that's negative to, uh, you know, Japanese people of like it aided in that distrust that I feel like was prevalent at the time. And it's Mm. kind of, uh, it adds to that, that, you know, grayness of that time period that I think like he could have made a good statement there. Um, to maybe defend the people that we interned. Um, but instead it is just kind of like, Oh, let me be artsy fartsy, but who knows if maybe there were more people involved in this plot at Pearl Harbor. Um, but then again, we're talking also about historical inaccuracies in a Michael uh, Bay, movie. in a Michael Bay movie where honestly I was kind of flabbergasted at the scene where Alec Baldwin's like, yeah, the Royal air force needs an American pilot to, join their ranks to, you know, defeat the Germans and stuff. And I'm like, how, so why would a foreign government hire like an American pilot to join their air force? Who's, I had to look this up on Wikipedia. Like, is that real? Not saying that Wikipedia is that much more accurate than Michael Bay, but according to Wikipedia, uh, enlisted people could not volunteer or serve in a foreign army because of course you fucking can't right like there are people who go and sign up to like fight for the syrian free army right now and then they get you know detained when they come back and at least questioned yeah and i have to imagine it's something similar uh but americans were allowed to join the british uh raf Weird. If they weren't enlisted. Like, the fucking Air Force 
that you'd be quitting your job for America to go serve I'm a so foreign confused. government. Yeah. And so you, like that was the weird underpinning of Ben Affleck's character is like he's so eager to join the war that he wants to fight not necessarily for his country, but not but on behalf of. I mean, if I had a job right now and somebody <laughs> uh-huh. was like, you can go do your job in Europe, but you might kill some Nazis, too. Like, sure. I'd go do it. That's true, but it just like the way it's presented is in that Top Gun shit. It's like you know Alec Baldwin plays mm-hmm. his commander in the beginning of the movie, and then comes back near the end. That's sort of similar to Maverick's story, where he you know he starts with that bald, uh, that great character actor, and I'm sorry I forgot your name too, but <laughs> um, and then he comes back later in the movie when it's like it's the real deal, and it's a you know they have to really go up in the sky and you know kill people. And Alec Baldwin comes back and offers to fly along with them, just like Tom Skerritt's character in Top Gun, not to bring up Top Gun so much, but um, I've never seen all of Top Gun. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go on a tangent for the next 45 minutes. Uh, please. Uh, <laughs> no, well, hang on. Let's, let's keep it short. Okay. Better or worse <laughs> than Pearl Harbor. Um, Top Gun is, is, and I'm being earnest when I say one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> Are I, you fucking kidding I me? I think it's, uh, I think it's amazing. It makes me laugh. It makes me cry. It it's, makes me just, uh, it hits every nerve ending. Great soundtrack. Um, I bought it. It was my first cassette uh, that I bought when I was a kid at a CD warehouse. It was the first CD. One of the first CDs I bought other than uh, Jules Pieces of You. Um, my first CD was Eiffel 65. Oh, fuck yeah. Was that the blue? I'm blue. blue I'm a beat I'm up a D. die. Fucking is that seriously? <laughs> that was my first. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I've known you for a very long time. I now like fully understand you now that <laughs> I the second CD was Offspring Smash. Uh, yeah, I think that was one of my first CDs. It was literally like jewel pieces of you, like a Nickelodeon soundtrack, Top Gun, and then uh, I mean, other than some singles, I mean, I had you know, The Boy Is Mine with Brandy and Monica, but mm-hmm. um, that's again, side tangent. Um, <laughs> You can tell how enrapturing Pearl Harbor is that we just can't talk about this movie. Well, I, I think the thing that, that I always remembered about Pearl Harbor, because it's been quite some time since I've seen this. Um, I remembered that it used to it was one of the two VHS movies that um, kind of like Titanic, where you knew that you were mm-hmm. getting into a thick milkshake. Um, and this one is kind of an interesting one. You know, we've been discussing um, Michael Bay's car- you know, career up till this point. And his other movies have sort of increased in their, like, stakes. You know, you have bad boys within this, uh, you know, smaller stakes little um, situation that Will Smith and Martin Lawrence find themselves in. And then The Rock is an even bigger sort of, oh, they have control of an island and Mm -hmm. we got to stop them. And then you have an asteroid in Armageddon. And here he sort of tries to one-up himself in a way to um, get an Oscar. You know, there was this was post, you know, Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a bulk of the creativity that went into this movie was in that hour long battle sequence, because there are some thoughtful and provoking images. You know, you have um, people drowning in the ships. Uh, this is another sort of ego conflating moment, too, where Michael Bay post Titanic is like, how can I one up Titanic? Let me sink 12, you know, like uh, huge naval ships. That scene where Ben Affleck is holding the hand of like a sailor who's trapped yeah. in a ship and is drowning is 
actually pretty fucking heart-wrenching. That's, that's a, like, it really is a, uh, a striking moment. And mm. I think that was more powerful than, like, this quick, strange character arc with Cuba Gooding Jr., where it came sort of out of nowhere, and then... I feel like that was his attempt at historical accuracy, because that was an actual real person mm. uh, that they were incorporating into the film. Uh, but going back to what you were saying about the overall arc of Bay's career, I think this was the most frustrating project for him at the time. Mm. He quit this film no less than four times during production. Really? Uh, over budget? I'm guessing they were over budget or... Uh... He offered to take a $4 million pay cut because they wouldn't give him the budget he wanted. He wanted this to be R-rated. Hmm. Uh, and he wanted it to be about the horror of war, which you can see some of that in the Pearl Harbor sequence. Sure. But it was definitely cut down for Disney. Uh, he also just didn't, he was consistently feeling hamstrung and frustrated. And it's interesting that this is also the first film he made to flop. And Bay's one of those rare filmmakers who has relatively few flops. And this is probably his biggest one. See, I didn't know that it was a flop because I, I I knew that it made like maybe 130 or it, it was made for about 130 million dollars, which that's not I don't think including advertising and all of that shit. Mm-hmm. But I thought that it made uh, around the same as um, Armageddon, his last movie. But I think it made a little bit less. It made about a hundred million dollars less. Okay, so without looking at the numbers, that would be about 400 million dollars it made. It was like 450 million. But 450, I, but. Again, you have to, I believe we talked about this in Bad Boys or The Rock, um, for a film to make its budget back, the overall number is you have to make 3.5 times what the yeah. actual budget is to factor in marketing costs, uh, the expenses that theaters take out, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So a film like Armageddon that was made for a lot less and ended up making more money is a much bigger hit than something that cost 130 million and maybe made 400, which going back to uh, hating on JJ Abrams rise of Skywalker is maybe going to make, I think I saw five or 600 million domestic, Wow. which uh, that's why you don't listen to Reddit Disney. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, Oh, go ahead. Evan. I was just going to say that uh, Wikipedia again, not the most reputable. We don't know. Um, says that Armageddon and Pearl Harbor were both made for $140 million. Interesting. That was the, at least the budget. So equally made, but Pearl Harbor making $100 million less, mm-hmm. give or take. Well, I think the disappointment that's, uh, you know correlates with this movie isn't necessarily like maybe it financially broke even. I, I think that he was, Michael Bay, was wanting to make a big event spectacle movie. I think... Again, using Saving Private Ryan, Ryan, Ryan's, uh, <laughs> Saving Private Ryan as an example. Um, I mean, the relentlessness of the beginning to that movie and what it's known for, which I think is the highlight of that movie, um, is so heart pounding and real. And I think that he was wanting to one up Spielberg and make like an Academy Award winning movie. Um, 
because of his insecurity over Armageddon, I think he was really stoked that Armageddon made a shitload of money. Like I remembered that being a huge tentpole movie back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that it sort of ruffled his feathers that it didn't, you know, wasn't critically adored. Um, it's not like you, you see people walking around with Armageddon shirts on, you know? Um, and I think that he wanted to, for one, make another Americana piece because he knew that that was one of the things that, uh, Armageddon had going for it. Um, and he wanted to make a big period piece. I think he wanted to be challenged uh, to make, you know, really one up his costuming, uh, you know, department and uh, make a huge spectacle event uh, that would garner him, you know, uh, adoration. I think he wanted to kind of break into the mainstream, not necessarily for the you know, Hollywood blockbustery movies that he was mm -hmm. known for previously, but break into like an adult audience. But that's where he falls flat because you have this melodrama that that really chokes the movie quite a bit. Um, I mean, going into the plot, um, Ben Affleck and uh, Josh Hartnett's characters sort of grew up with each other, um, uh, wanting to be pilots and they're best friends and they're both in the Air Force. And, uh, you know, Ben Affleck uh, strikes up a... Uh, a hot nurse after he admits he has like dyslexia, I'm guessing was during the eye exam. Yeah. It had to be dyslexia. But then it, that doesn't go anywhere. It's not like it came back later in the movie of like, you it know, it kind of does because when Josh Hartnett's dying, he says, uh, have someone else write my tombstone. Um, oh, oh my I chuckled at that. Oh, kill me. <laughs> okay, I now I know what he was talking about. Well, that was a poor payoff then, I'll say. I giggled. Um, what I giggled at was how many times Ben Affleck said, don't take my wings uh, throughout this movie, which was his, like, uh, you know, come on line to um, Kate Beckinsale's character. Mm -hmm. And I was expecting that to, you know, show up, you know, at some point in the movie, you know, when Josh Hartnett, spoilers, dies. You know, of like, now you get to take my wings and mm -hmm. go to heaven, little child, you know? Um, and I mean, that's really where the movie suffers quite a bit is that melodrama. Like, even the score gets this intense, um, bad Lifetime Channel haze that is obnoxious. Um, you know, so, uh, sorry, going back to the plot, you know, Ben Affleck strikes it up with this nurse they fall in love and that's great and hunky dory. And then Ben Affleck joins the Royal air force. It's super wonderful. <laughs> it's, um, it's so great that you see they go on one date and oh, he's like, I love you. I'm going to Europe. I, I would know, totally do that. I would do that for my lucky lady. Every time I was on the market and I went on one date with a girl and told her I loved her and I was going to Europe, she was sold. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Usually if by handshake they're not in love with me, I'm just like, okay, I'm over it. I'm going I'm going to Europe. I mean, the flip side is neither of us look like Ben Affleck in 1990, well, I guess 2001. That's true. But, so. you know, I, I, I didn't think I was going to feel worse about myself <laughs> yeah. uh, when I started this podcast. <laughs> and now I feel even worse. Because not only did I lose five and a half hours of my life between this and Armageddon... And more time with bad boys, mm -hmm. rock, the rock can keep all, all the time it wants. But, um, that was the, one of the lowest parts for me was, um, this entire movie and this melodrama. Like, 
Um, so going back to the plot, uh, Ben Affleck gets shot down, left thinking that, you know, he's left for dead. He, he, you know, was shot down over the, the ocean and he's lost. And, um, you know, Josh Hartnett's character, uh, is the one to break it to Kate Beckinsale's character that Ben Affleck is, you know, missing, declared dead. And then they sort of bond, they bond, they have some fall in love, parachute wind action, uh, in a really corny, uncomfortable, uh, scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, randomly Ben Affleck shows up again and everything's like, Oh, you know, like, Hey babe, I'm back. Uh, I wasn't dead. It was yeah. just an occupied France. And I couldn't call you. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's sort of, that was a, an interesting scene too, where he was sort of going like, we are together. Right. And then Josh Hartnett runs in, you know, this is where like that soap opera stuff comes in. Well, the interesting thing is it never is paid off, really, uh, because she talks about how things are more complicated. Josh Hartnett runs in. Ben Affleck gets the idea and like storms away. There's then Ben Affleck's at the bar getting drunk. Josh Hartnett shows up. They get in the bar fight. But the three of them never really discuss what's going on at any point together and, and i think that's where the huge detriment falls that they didn't start a triad relationship dude because that's what i was expecting this whole time too is like hey i mean they could totally make this work i mean this is about the time america's are invading france i'm sure there was a lot of enthusiasm for eiffel towers oh yeah i'd be disappointed if there wasn't um but that's also where you know the dumb adolescent shit comes in where like Hartnett, like the whole love triangle thing is so gross because it's like Josh Hartnett is insecure. Like, Oh, she, she's now in love with him again. And he, she loves him more than me. And Ben Affleck is, is in like a same dumb role. And you know, you never really know Kate Beckinsale. Like you understand she's able to communicate through her performance that she is definitely at a crossroads. Is she? I, well, I, I, I think she chose, does okay with I the material given to her. I but. mean, to, to just show some insight into me, I would have chosen chosen. Uh, I thought Sean Connery showed up for a second. Chosen, chosen, chosen one. Um, I would have chosen Josh Hartnett because they literally had more chemistry, and there were more scenes of them actually like doing shit. Like, oh, let's go to the car and hang out on the beach, and oh, yeah, I don't know how to get my she car goes out of on the sand. One date with Ben Affleck, yeah, and she's in love with him forever. Yeah, like. And, and, Maybe it was a different era, but again, he fucked off to Europe. You're going to Hawaii where there's this many sailors. Well, it was like, also too, like she was devastated and she completed the mourning process of whatever that looked like to her. But again, even before he dies, he fucks off and leaves her to go to Europe. She's going to where they say when she's talking to the other nurses, they're outnumbered like 10 to one by dudes. Yeah. She's like 20. Come on, Ben Affleck, what are you doing? But then that's that would have been the perfect um, time to, you know, introduce, you know, a relationship with her and, like, Jennifer Garner or something, you know, spice things up. I think, you know, it could have... Exp- she, she was the third lead in this movie because she has a little mini arc where, um, for some reason, the Japanese bomb the hospital, which, again, isn't factually accurate at all. It's not factually accurate, but come on. It's not like the Japanese committed war crimes in World War II. Of course, of course. But when we're talking about, like, historical accuracy, it's kind of a big deal to say that the enemy, the Japanese, bombed a hospital when that's that 
God bless your soul, uh, Evan. Evan, our producer, sneezed. Mm-hmm. I just want the record to show that I said, God bless you, my son. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's kind of heinous, and I'm sorry to use the word heinous, but it's kind heinous. of wild. <laughs> it's kind of wild to just go like, oh, and the Japanese were such assholes that they bombed a hospital. Um, but Have that, you heard about Nanjing? Well, yeah. Um, uh, I, they did a lot more than hospitals. That's very true. But I feel like in this instance, it's a way to cheapen. Um, it's Michael Bay. In uh, look, well, war is fucked up. America did fucked up shit too. Japan didn't bomb this hospital, but they sure. did really fucked up shit in Singapore. Oh, of course, and I, Baton, I, yeah. I'm not. I, I'm not really a, a fangirling out over any, uh, you know, country at this point. Um, but uh, oh, dude, I'm a huge Hirohito fan. Oh, right on. Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, like her arc. Like I realized that she was one of the main characters when, like, she has to put her like. Uh, fingers in this in this guy, the guy from Seven, who like uh, that's where I knew yeah. him from. Oh my gosh, I was so distracted. <laughs> he was the guy who had like the spiky the dildo, uh, dildo thing that he had to he use. Made me yeah. fuck her. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was I was beside myself because I was like, gosh, this is. I just love seeing this guy because he. He's just he makes me uncomfortable in this great <laughs> in this great way. But she has to put uh, her, her fingers, fingers straight in up in his vein. Which, um, honestly, it's surprising what they got away with for a PG-13. The amount yeah. of, like, medical gore is pretty impressive. Well, and they're showing, like, destruction. Like, all of those sailors die. Not, you know, like, uh, Titanic showed people slow. I mean, mm-hmm. Titanic had some uh, had some violence in it and stuff. But, like, there's some pretty devastating moments. Like, you talk about, um, you know, the hands through the grate and those people dying. Like... That's a really disturbing image, and and to be honest, that's the one that I'll probably take from this movie is how like just disturbing that is that you have freedom within your hands grasp and it's all for naught. I guess we should talk about how after Pearl Harbor there's another hour of the movie. Yeah, I I'm kind of confused as to why the hell that happened because it was it was literally like a bunch of the stories had concluded well but our main character's story hadn't i mean if you make it a tragedy and have them die in pearl harbor or at least one of them like they end up doing anyway uh then you can potentially end it there but you can't have both heroes survive it's this unexpected thing like the arc isn't done well, I, I hate to go to the Kevin Smith well, but if you had taken a page from Chasing Amy, I think they should have had just a sit down. They should have gone and talked about what they could do. I would to love exist together if Pearl Harbor was just a movie about the three of them forming their thruple while the Japanese yeah. were bombing boats in the background. T- totally. Well, I mean, that's the the weird thing about this movie is it's a war movie that is disguised as a melodrama, so it's it's kind of has that Titanic vibe, and I'm sorry I keep mentioning Titanic, but that same sort of romanticism and sentiment is there where you're sort of drawing focus to these characters and their relationship while this big event is happening around them, mm-hmm. but then it turns into, like, this uh, strange Americana, you know... Um, butt fest with Affleck going like someone get me to a plane you know he comes back and he you know they're in like a convertible and there's a chase scene with like a bunch of 
mm-hmm. airplanes and um it, it really is a, a sight to behold also tom sizemore is in this movie totally gosh so fuck i wish we had commentary like we did with armageddon because you know there's some stories about that guy and i mean he was one of the major badasses in the movie i think if i were to remake this movie it would be with him and michael nah, shannon man man <laughs> no you oh. don't want to get near tom sizemore well i mean if you could like labyrinth maze ball him into the right slots if that reference makes any sense um, with Michael Shannon, that could be a really wild movie. Um, and, you know, keep the romantic subplot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe Michael Shannon is dating um, someone and. Jamie King. Sure. Yeah. Spud. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> See, that would be interesting to me. Does the last hour of the movie cover anything about, like, the Doolittle Raid? That's was, exactly yeah, that's what it funny is. funny you say that, yeah. Is yeah. Like, so it's like Pearl Harbor, the movie is about. What happened to Pearl Harbor? And then the sort of like what retaliation of American troops. It should have been called like, yeah. Fuck you. like Pearl Harbor colon Doolittle. Doolittle. <laughs> yeah. oh, I mean, great. like the the, better uh, movie than Doolittle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jerry Lewis comes in. Hey, lady. Actually, I was going to say talking animals in the last hour would have <laughs> heightened everything. You know, who knows? Yep. Maybe Ben Affleck, you know. Also, I'd love how the heroes in the movie are defending like armed naval ships and shit and then they go and they bomb fucking factories yeah <laughs> like, oh my god <laughs> like eventually there's guns shooting at them but it's not like they're bombing like planes or boats like i get it it's war but it's so much less sympathetic to bomb just the fucking japanese guy who's like you know what i'm not gonna go invade somewhere i'm just gonna make some shit yeah and then that asshole gets killed by ben affleck (sighs) yeah uh, you can't (laughs) listener dear listener you can't see it but paco has uh gotten up and he is threatening me with his eyes (laughs) and he is hovering over me in a way that is unbecoming Look, I'm just saying the spirit of Bushido encompassed everyone who left Japan. (laughs) The people who stayed were mostly women, the infirm, and people who otherwise were considered unacceptable for Japanese service. And that's who the heroes of this movie bomb. (laughs) And they, they mark it as like a heroic move. Yeah. It's like, yay, America, and, you really got him back. And they show it as all, like, you know, military-aged Japanese soldiers, as if those people weren't in the Philippines or elsewhere deep in hand-to-hand combat. Well, I mean, that's the thing, is they had those, like, fake, um, like, narration documentary series mm-hmm. interludes, where instead of doing, which I give, okay, I don't give big credit, but he didn't do, like, the spinning newspaper thing that you see in a lot of other films of that era, you know, like, oh, extra, extra, this happened, da 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 mm-hmm. um, And they start doing these docu-reels that are, like, poorly narrated, and it doesn't fully contextualize what this meant in the, you know, in our place in war and not wanting to participate in this sort of forcing the hand. All right, so I've been talking about what I like about the style of Bay, and I got to admit, the, like, newsreel guy with the Super 8 or whatever he's got... Like, oh, filming the yeah. planes, and then they'd cut to footage from a similar camera in black yeah. and white. That 
shit worked for me. That would have been like that would have been especially interesting. when he gets killed and the camera like flips over and you see him dead. Like yeah, it's like there are stakes and pathos in this Michael Bay movie. Well, I mean, they should have stayed with that concept because those those parts also rang my bell as well. But I I thought that was interesting. Like, it's really not often when you're watching one of Michael Bay's movies that you're like, huh, that was kind of thoughtful. Like, it would have mattered if the character was introduced before the raid. (laughs) Yeah. And we cared about him at all. But I mean, that's that's standard Michael Bay shit where it's like you're why care about these action figures when there's all of these big bombs going off and we just want to time it so that we have a little bit of this melodrama and oh i have to do this you know for the studio before Mm -hmm. i get back to jamming my toys together um but i mean my kind of ideal world for michael bay is a world where he's only with his toys because that's where he's good he knows where to put the camera he knows where to make those cuts like that's the only you know entertaining part Michael, of Michael Bay's movies. Michael Bay with his toys are what all of the Transformers movies are that we get to look forward to because that's him jamming those together. Okay, let me that are... rephrase that. I want to see Michael Joes. Bay having humans kill humans because that can be fucking fun when it's just all <laughs> computer garbage that I don't care about. It's nothing. But humans killing humans, they're still... You can put your personal stakes upon those characters, at least to a limited degree. Or you can relate to it in the sense of watching a Rambo movie and being like, fuck yeah. Sure. But, but uh, we'll we'll get to the Transformers movies and god damn it. I, god, I, I can't wait. My, my, my soul is, you know, yearning for it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, with with this movie in particular, there was actually like a couple of scenes that I thought were actually really funny. One, w- the end, like it, it was legitimately funny that I laughed like actually very hard, um, which was my favorite part of this movie other than the credits. When he's raising the kid? No. When uh, Danny's up oh, like God. he's Jesus on a cross? I, <laughs> okay, I, oh, I left out a couple of points. Yes, that one was ridiculous. So he dies in a Christ-like fashion where you're like, okay, Michael Bay, I get it. Also, where I did get they get it. that log? Well, well, I think it came down from Nazareth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a beam. It was a support beam. Yeah. Um, no, the, They imported it from Bethlehem. There was one scene that I legitimately cracked up on, and it was when uh, Ben Affleck is on the steps with Kate Beckinsale, and, mm-hmm. he, and he has a broken nose at uh, uh, this point because he was dosed with her vaccine in a flirtatious attempt that wasn't at all creepy, like, hey, give me a date. Hey, give me a date. You know, because when he's introduced, um, you know, to her, he's coming on very strong um, and gets mm-hmm. an extra shot in his, his tuchus, which was a, a funny comedic bit in the movie. But um, the scene that I thought was really funny was he, he's like trying to flirt and be suave. And he has this like huge bandage over his nose mm-hmm. and he pops the cork of the champagne as they're just hanging out on this on these steps right in front of her car drinking champagne. And he hits himself in the nose and I'm sounding really ridiculous, but his like eyes tear up and he's trying to act like it's not affecting him to be a man in front of Kate Beckinsale and like act like it didn't hurt him mm-hmm. when she realizes that he's in a lot of pain. And there's this weird, sweet spot where it worked for me completely where I was like, okay, Ben Affleck is very charming and this is very cute and they have chemistry. And then it's all ruined by a bunch of shit. Like, uh, I think he's, 
she's like, are you in pain or, or something? And he's like, yeah, you're so beautiful. It hurts. And I'm like, God, you know, fuck you. Fuck you for making me laugh and feel like an asshole as I'm watching this as a 30-year-old man in my room at 1130 at night. God. Um, and it just ruined all of the goodwill by by those moments. So I watched this in Armageddon back-to-back. Me too. Armageddon first and then Pearl Harbor. I teared up at the end of Armageddon. I did not give a flying fuck about the end of this movie. Um, I mean, it was kind of funny when Josh Hartnett got shot that was just bizarre too like that whole doolittle part of the movie was so uneven like the talking animals just really took me out oh of totally it. it's just like when are you gonna fix them eddie murphy shows up <laughs> well robert downey <laughs> now. well it's it's the eddie murphy version i think uh, this is post uh, dr little too <laughs> there's like some hamsters being all cute and stuff no mm-hmm. but i mean like it nothing's worse than a movie that's already sort of miserable wears out its welcome. Mm -hmm. And I will forever remember this movie as being something so upsetting to me when I looked at the counter and saw, there's still an hour hour left because I was like, okay, cool. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm stretching my fingers out and I'm like, okay, cool. Pearl Harbor is over only to see another hour. And it end. I was expecting it to go in the Schindler's list sort of category where the end of the movie would, have like a bunch of the real Pearl Harbor survivors actually go like on a ship and you know, where the Arizona is, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, sunk. I thought they were going to do something sort of poignant or something kind of like real worldly because I was like, you know, Bay doesn't care about people. Exactly. And that's, that's one of my other disappointments is you could have made like an interesting, did you see that Affleck's grandpa didn't watch the movie because he was actually at Pearl Harbor? Oh shit. Huh? And that explains why he hates Ben Affleck too. Bay or is Ben Affleck's grandpa? Grand, well, both. I think. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that was you know, uh, last episode we talked about uh, Ben Affleck's you know famous um, commentary track uh, where he's belittling you know Bay and mm-hmm. uh, in you know their Armageddon uh, phase of their relationship, and I kind of had that in the back of my head too. You had mentioned uh, off mic that. Um, you know, it was interesting to think of them working on this movie because Bay is again, notoriously, uh, you know, he rubs actors the wrong way. Uh, Bruce Willis notoriously hated, uh, uh, you know, the experience working with Bay on Armageddon. Affleck on that commentary says Bay understands <laughs> the American mind because he's like a child. And most of the mo- uh, people who see his movies are children. Well, I mean, that's, that's the other thing is, you know, Bay, has this just condescension to his filmmaking that drives me crazy because he's very... I find it kind of endearing. Oh, I, I hate it. Like, there's... Like, if you go on michaelbay.com, which is a real website Are you that serious? he owns, uh, you can find a lot of essays that he's provided oh <laughs> uh, in context to how he's... Uh, the films that he's made and everything. Oh, and, of course, they paint him in a great light. Um, Fuck, we might have to do a reading series later. But I mean, the making of this, you know, I, I was re- researching about Pearl Harbor, the movie, um, and his experience on michaelbay.com, and he talks about, you know, he doesn't make films for critics. And it's like, I feel like this is the beginning of that sort of bullshit that filmmakers pander, where it's like, you know, we make it for the fans, and we don't make it for critics, you know, who are stuffy and want to see like a Noah, a Noah Bambach movie. Well, 
I don't want to see a Noah Baumbach movie. Well, either. no one does, but I'm just saying, uh, you know, <laughs> somebody <they're>, does. <laughs> they're, but I mean, I think he's like attacking like intellectuals. Like, I'm gonna make a movie that's a movie. I'm not gonna make a film. And I know that's a that's a condescending comment, but he's he's like saying, hey, I'm making a movie that I know is stupid, but I know that paying audiences are gonna see it. Like, there's this salesmanship to his I direction mean, that's that's obnoxious. I kind of get it because having even just at like a student or very low level, having made films, it fucking every time someone talks shit, like you put so much work in and whatever we say about Michael Bay, he puts years of his life into these films. <laughs> which <laughs> I sucks don't feel for bad. Him. I, know, yeah. I was like, I don't feel bad about myself anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the like ten hours we've wasted watching them so far seems like oh, nothing. God. But Every time someone, like, criticizes something that you spend that much time on, it fucking hurts. Like, at a certain point, you get relatively used to it, and you build up a resistance. But, yeah, I mean, it's still gotta fucking suck if you grow up reading or watching Roger Ebert, and Roger Ebert writes a Criterion essay for The Rock... (laughs) And then shits on literally every other one of your movies. But but I, I feel like that's the obnoxiousness about it is like he's so insecure that like each movie he kind of retools a little bit to like try and have everyone like it. And I feel like this is the beginning of when he was like, you know what? Fuck him. Because this is when he's just like moneymaker mode where he's like, I don't care what movie I'm going to make. I'm going to make a bunch of money off of it because I'm going to get into these algorithms of what people are wanting you know, granted the movie after this one is bad boys too, which I'm again, not looking forward to, but I feel like that's when he really came into, um, the system of being a big filmmaker that people relied on to get these Mm -hmm. spectacles, because I feel, you know, the rock was awesome, but I feel like Armageddon started him on this path of being on a tour in terms of people knew they could expect huge explosions, huge concepts, and I feel like that's, again, this interesting change in Hollywood where it started to get even bigger. Well, know? I kind of respect it. I don't agree with it, but he knows what he wants to make and he's got the runway to make it. It sucks. <laughs> I'm never going to watch Pearl Harbor again. I like, uh, But going back to the concept of vulgar tourism as people working in genre cinema... I mean, I've had a couple beards. I don't want to go into the whole fucking theory around man originally, but the idea is untraditional directors can be auteurs. And I think part of why I chose Bay as our starting point is he's not good, but no one else makes a movie like him. He's a visionary. That's true. I mean, he, he has the Santana riff. You know, it's like, you know, a Santana song or when he's playing on a song because of his guitar tone. And much like Santana, he's had one good release (laughs) and a whole uh, lot of Rob Thomas. I was going to say the Rob (laughs) Thomas release was the, his penultimate release. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, God, what was I talking about? Uh, you were talking about how Ewan Bremer is a dumb name. (laughs) well that is really true i think spud's a more becoming name um i i do think that you know vulgar auteurism is is a real thing 
but I think there's a difference between like, you know, you have someone like Michael Bay who interprets film in a different way. That's more salesmanship. You know, I don't think that you look at like, it's not like Tim Burton where, you know, a Tim Burton film because of like the visual aesthetic or like, you know, some of the derivations of what he does. He has been doing for 30 years. Mm -hmm. You look at a Michael Bay movie and he's known for, big explosions he's known for spectacle spectacle and it's all everyone is on the same page when it comes to like but they're kind of shitty you know from the people the small they're also on that page about tim burton that's well that's very true but tim burton hasn't made a good movie since big fish i think um although dumbo for life but um but that's another for another podcast uh i do feel like uh, when it comes to Michael Bay, I feel like he's just a watered-down James Cameron. Like, James Cameron is sort of the similar yeah. thing. You know James Cameron for the huge spectacles, but he does it in a way that is, at least ratings-wise, much better, and he does it in a more slightly sophisticated way, where even something like Terminator 2 could have been a dog shit movie, but there mm-hmm. are these little nuances to it that actually make it so enjoyable for everybody. But they're all characters. The difference is, yeah, James Cameron cares about his characters. Yeah. Like, he may not be a great actor's director, yeah. but he's always interested in what his characters are doing and why they're doing them. Michael Bay, the characters feel like an afterthought. Totally. He just wants to get to the next explosion. Does that make him part of the O tour definition? I mean, all an author is, or which is you know the non fancy French way of saying it, yeah. uh, <laughs> is someone who brings their own stamp to material. That's true. And you can watch a movie and be like, you "That cannot, was probably Michael Bay." Yeah, and, people, and then you look it up, and it's like, "Holy shit!" It but was. But I mean, how much of that is also Jerry Bruckheimer's producing? Uh, you know, I think, and then we talked about that previously. Like, if that, you looked at Con Air, you could not confuse a Simon West movie for a Michael Bay movie. I thought it was Michael Bay. Uh, honestly, I could I'm totally sorry to say. no. I mean, I totally thought it was. I, I, and I'm, again, I think that auteurism should go a lot further than just directors. Uh, as someone who works professionally as a producer, producers do not get enough credit. Oh, absolutely. I but, mean, Jerry Bruckheimer makes this look good. But if we <laughs> were to do... To, sorry to reference Will Smith, but it's I'm getting prepared for Bad Boys too. If we were to do a, a producer's uh, podcast, one... Lloyd Kaufman for life. Lloyd Kaufman... Fuck now. Yeah, um, come on. <laughs> uh, if I ever make a... Uh, burn off Twitter handle. It's gonna be Sergeant Bukaki Man. Oh, uh, okay, I like it's that. It's a play on Sergeant yeah, Kabuki Man. I, I yeah, you, yeah, yeah, super classy. It's just naughty. It's a little naughty. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I feel like Lloyd Kaufman would love that. Uh, but I'm sure. The problem is producers get their hands on so many more films at this level anyway, like the Bruckheimer level that. I mean, it would just be an onslaught of probably 60 movies. We'd be doing it for a year. But, I mean, I feel like the working relationship with Jerry Bruckheimer is kind of fascinating because, you know, Michael Bay has unlimited resources, and I feel like he has full um, sort of control of what he wants. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it almost produces a lack of focus that, that well, one of the issues with this movie is it wasn't just Bruckheimer. It was also Disney and, uh, 
that was where a lot of the conflicts over the eventual rating and the eventual budget were because they wanted 200 million for this movie mm-hmm. um which they didn't get and i would have been curious to see where that extra like 70 million was yeah where would they have put that obviously explosions well we're pumping up the melodrama a little bit you know they could have some really you know ritzy i did say bay took a four billion dollar pay cut yeah but i think he probably made a shitload more in uh getting a percentage of the gross i'm imagining this movie did not do that well i i i feel like michael bay would have a backdoor gross if you know what i mean i mean (sighs) i just pointed to my producer evan to get a laugh but (laughs) And it worked because I'm like a Pavlov's dog. Just, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he loves to sell. Nothing. At back door we grosses. are not. We are not claiming that he is friends with Harvey Weinstein or Brett Ratner. <laughs> Wait, me? <laughs> I'm saying we are not saying it's that kind of backdoor gross. Yes. Oh, <laughs> but I also, I mean, you're not supposed to know about that. Yes, yeah. allegedly. But yeah, it's not like he's ever done anything weird to women. Um, I, I I do want to ask because I feel like. Um, it's a question that's always been on my mind about the, like, we talk about directors as auteurs, but then I think about, like, but who wrote this film? Yeah, the director is in charge of how the movie essentially is made. Exactly. But how much influence does the writer have? Like, say the writer maybe had a different vision for this movie. Does that matter? It does to a degree. I mean... The writer um, for Pearl Harbor was the same writer for, like, Man in the Iron Mask, which is, like, hmm. it's not the best movie in the world, but I don't think it's that bad. And it, um, I mean, I don't know. It, it's different. He, Bay's famous for encouraging actors to improvise mm-hmm. because he doesn't really care. <laughs> um, well, also, he but, he feels like the type of person who, if a scene wasn't working, he'd be like, you know, fuck it, just cut that out. Like, we'll we'll put in something else later. But that brings up the other element of auteurship that is not discussed enough. One, yes, writers deserve much more credit because they build the structure the entire film is based on. Directors do great work. And good directors are incredibly rare and should be celebrated. However, script supervisors. Oh, yeah. You got to have that continuity. They're (laughs) literally, they are the meat and potatoes of the movie. You got to make sure Ben Affleck's all oiled up right. Oh, Um, totally. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt. But. Because that's written into it. (laughs) Most directors do not have final cut of their film. Editors are the third author that are almost always forgotten. Yeah, that that's another so, thing too. I feel like uh, editors are sort of thrown out the window because they're think essentially of, like the second. Think or about as Scorsese said, it's the second director, right? Every. So who do we have to blame about, for this one? Fucking everyone. <laughs> I don't know, but think about every film you hear about, like The Shining or a Fincher movie, where they do two hundred takes of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Fincher has final cut. Maybe Kubrick does, but. They are incredibly rare. Um, and the only way to get around that is to do the alternative and pull an Eastwood or a John Ford where you only shoot like one take of everything so that the editor can't steal the movie around you. Wow. So that's, that's yeah, that's limiting the options given so that 
the mm. editor has no choice but to do the yeah, way. Yeah, that's which funny. I'm sure Eastwood that would like have torture. that. That's a type of torture, by the way. Eastwood <laughs> would have that <laughs> control if he wanted it, but Ford was a different era when directors were considered sort of on par with. They weren't on par with grips, but you know, they weren't the stars of the filmmaking process. Sure. And John Ford, after a few movies, was so frustrated by it. So he'd have the actors rehearse and rehearse. And when he was sure they'd have it, he'd only shoot the one take. He would not shoot any coverage. So the editor couldn't cut away from what he wanted. He was one of the first directors to storyboard. Uh, I personally am of a late enough era that I don't find his movies that compelling. I think he inspired a lot of filmmakers that I love. Mm -hmm. And I really respect that part of his craft i just don't think my darling clementine is that compelling of a film but i think he's a great author a great example of an auteur director in an era where it was incredibly difficult to do that well clearly you haven't seen how green was my valley i um, have okay. <laughs> well uh I, I I think you've touched on something interesting. It turns out it was black and white. Yes, it was. And it was <laughs> Not boring. green at all. And it was boring. Very boring. Um, I think my least favorite John Ford that I've watched at this point. Um, but you do bring up an interesting poll where it's like, John Ford, like Michael Bay, was all about spectacle, regardless of the cost of, you know, uh, his actor's comfort. Um, you know, I think he kept a lot of actors in the dark of what he was going to do. And he seemed pretty, and I, I mean this in a good way. I think John Ford had some really interesting movies from Stagecoach to The Searchers, which, you know, Stagecoach is, I think, one of the most compelling action movies, you know, where it sort of bridged the gap between what Westerns were and are mm -hmm. and all of those, those archetypes with like really heart wrenching, like, moments of tension and suspense and terror where you're like genuinely concerned of like what's going to happen next. Um, it's got some incredible stunts too. Oh, I mean it, it in that era, like the production value of the stunts wasn't nearly as good as it is now, but the stunt work was so much more dangerous. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and like the shit they're doing, it, it really like looking on it now, it, it, it's just so compelling just on a technical level of what they were able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I feel like John Ford ushered in that era of auteurism of being like, I, you know, he uh, had a career where he was renowned and known by his work. Um, and I think that Michael Bay has kind of fit into his own in that regard. And especially at Pearl Harbor at this point, but I feel like it's a rushed attempt to make himself more of a, an auteur in the way that Spielberg is or, you know, to win an award. No, I, I think he's already in his own lane. Like the last two movies, there have been scenes of kids like in slow motion with Americana. Something horrible is about to happen. It, he's in his own propaganda zone that you really feel like this is someone who just grew up. He probably didn't given the time frame, but grew up in like the McCarthy era and only ever watched Rambo. Uh, <laughs> he's like a pure corn fed American zeitgeist Reagan stuff, man, dude, it fucking kind of, it's super addicting to me. Like <laughs> I'm just, fl I'm flabbergasted too. 
Uh, sorry I, to use the F word, but uh, <laughs> that's just, that's interesting. Cause like, I would have assumed that the punk rock part of you would be like, you know, I don't, Michael Bay. it's, it's no your enemy, man. Like he, Sun Tzu had nothing to do with this. Yeah. Like I said, he's so compelling with the propaganda. He knows exactly what notes to hit and where to get fucking. Don't take my wings. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> Uh, that had me. <laughs> I guarantee you that if we could shoot campaign ads for, God, Joe fucking Biden, God help us, or this is probably going to be released two months after we record it, so I'm uh, taking bets. And what about Burma or Bur- whatever? Sorry. Uh, cut, cut that out. <laughs> yeah. But, you what know. About Hunter? I want to know everything about Hunter. <laughs> oh, Burisma. Burisma. Yeah. Sorry, I'm an asshole. But I'm just saying... <laughs> If, what about Burma, though? If we get Michael Bay <laughs> India. to do ads for, okay, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, yeah. Which... Paco just Siegheld, by the way. Yeah. Uh, much like Pete Buttigieg does to pharmaceutical companies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bernie 2020. <laughs> um, because, let's face it, Michael Bay is not going to do a Bernie ad. Honestly, but Michael... If we no. get him to do a Bernie or a Boot ad, which, by the Bernie way... Bernie or Boot. That Biden. is a Michael Bay movie. If we get him to do a Biden or a boot ad, uh, can you imagine the corn we, dog commercial we just that call he him could do boot. with Joe Biden? Pete Boot, Petey uh, Boots, Petey Boots with his but my favorite food is hot dog. Yeah, he <laughs> would fucking sell people on those losers. Like, I don't know. I the more we talk about it, the think more about it. In Elizabeth, Joe Biden, there's a giant flag. There's a corn dog. There's a kid peeing in the pool. Yeah, oh, fuck yeah. Totally <laughs> Classic in. American comic. Mark, Mark Wahlberg's The Lifeguards. You would not believe it, but I'm pretty sure one of the first shots of Japanese planes in this movie is two kids peeing off a hill as Japanese planes fly oh my God. by it. No. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. I couldn't it's... tell if they were peeing or not, but their hands are down. Like, their backs are to the camera. Their hands are down below the Speaking pants. of Epstein... Um... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's there, there's this. Okay, uh, Epstein this, didn't kill himself. It's 2020. <laughs> to sort of tie into something that you, um, uh, without knowing off the top of my head, mentioned in oh in uh, the episode on Armageddon about how it's like why the fuck are there's no scientists that we're sending up to do this thing in America like they have like maybe Russian scientists and everything else, but it, it what came to mind was like this mentality I feel like Bay has where it's like. You know how our education rate is at its fucking lowest, mm-hmm. and it kind of made me think of like the these movies are are sort of targeted towards like we don't need to educate our young. God makes American heroes. Like, well, that's the thing. You're born an yeah. American hero. Oh, sure. American so heroes save the world. Are you know, see their pants, oil drillers. They're they're the flyboys. Yeah, the they're salt not the, of the earth. Yeah, Billy Bob Thornton has a fucking brace, so he's just a nerd who has to stay back on Earth. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, nerd. it's it's funny. He's kind of a hero, I well, guess. I mean, it's it's funny you mention that because I wrote down "God help those who attack America," 
and I underline that because I'm a neurotic bastard. But I think that's I, what the Japanese said, right? I think that's what American said. I can't remember which character said it, but I maybe it was FDR or John Voight. Which, which side that, note? Yeah, John Voight. I love how uh, one of our most conservative actors is playing one of our most liberal presidents. That was it uh, was pretty funny. I think he. Um, I think he, uh, what, uh, Christopher Lee did, uh, into this movie, you know, Christopher Lee notoriously loved Lord of the Rings or am I thinking of Ian McKellen? He like wrote to, you know, uh, Peter Jackson and really wanted to be part of this production and nerded out completely. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, he was probably really, he probably got a hard on, you know, imagining and turning all those Japanese people. I'm, I'm sure there was something in there, uh, you know, uh, about that. I mean, uh, I mean, we're talking about John Voight. Yeah. Uh, Like ask his opinion on uh, the internments we're doing now and you'll get a good idea of where he's at. I mean, you know, he's a national treasure. Yeah. He's uh... dude. Holy shit. (laughs) National treasure three Three, should be uh... Nicholas Cage stealing John Voight from an ice camp. Oh, or stealing his brain from some like brainwashy thing. But I think. Honestly, I mean, not not to go too much into a tangent, but I think that's why Angelina Jolie wanted to sort of distance herself from her father, you Mm -hmm. know, post-Anaconda, obviously. But, um, I mean, pre, like, Anaconda and pre-Anaconda, John Voight was dope. I mean, we're talking, (laughs) like, you know, Brian De Palma, Completely unproblematic until Anaconda. Oh, my gosh. After Anaconda, it all kind of went, well, okay, National Treasure, Nat Treasure was pretty cool. Um, Mm -hmm. But now it's all... S. Craig Zoller. Dumpster fire. Yeah. Dragged under concrete. He's like, he's doing these Kevin Spacey ads just for Donald Trump. Oof. You know what I mean? You know those like creepy Kevin Spacey ads where he's trying to, he's like in front of a fireplace and he's acting. I know we said this wasn't going to be a conspiracy theory (laughs) podcast, (laughs) but four people who accuse Kevin Spacey of rape have died in the past year. Oh, that's, again, there's a rational explanation. There's, yeah. <laughs> it's, there's something reasonable going on. Kevin Spacey. Is... Epstein killed himself and in doing so laid a curse oh. on Kevin Spacey's accusers. Oh, I mean, you know, there's if, if, you're a, if, you're <laughs> yeah. a, if you're a star witness who just uh, tried to commit suicide. Um... Anyways, this is anyway, a podcast um... about movies and not about conspiracy <laughs> theories or left wing politics. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and we are not all tired after a long day. Yeah. I just, uh, <laughs> you know, if. Another. If, if if I was to get us back on track, it's it's you know that Amer- that Americana of like God bless or God uh, you know help those who God God bless those who attack America God uh, you know help those who attack America. It's like that's the unflinching part of this narrative is it, it kind of creates this like all of the American ideals that you associate with this time period, with these type of arc, you know, the, the archetypes of all of these characters from the nurse's friends to, mm-hmm. I guess those are the only other characters other than their little buddies, like Spud and stuff. Um, Tom Sizemore, Tom Sizemore, which I mean, again, those off brand, those outlaws of the air force with their long hair, like Josh Hartnett has long hair in this movie. That kind of, it, uh, you know, flew me off the rails as it were, because I was just thinking of how, like, I, th- I think everyone would have had standard issue haircuts, especially if vision was a big deal. Like they talk about earlier in the movie yeah. uh, with Ben Affleck in that vision exam. If your hair is well, going clearly it wasn't because they passed him anyway. Well, speaking of Disney, you know, you, you had to, you know, cut your hair, make it, you know, off your ears, you know, when you work at the resort. 
all that jazz. Um, but I think this movie, like, looking back, you know, 19 years later, um, is a is a strange sort of movie because um, I think it started that whole process of let's make a history-based movie, like a historical fictional movie that will be taught in classes across the country. Like, it really, I was surprised it came out pre 9-11 because all the destruction involved felt like in America coping with 9-11. We're going to take a pee break. Yeah. Pee break. Pee break. But, um, you know, it, it reminds me of being in history class and watching The Patriot with yeah. Mel Gibson and Jason yeah. Isaacs when we were discussing, uh, you know, the Revolutionary War, which thanks, Miss Green, you know, <laughs> if you're listening. Oh, my God. Um, I really appreciate the placeholder that you used for two periods uh, that last week in um, Thanksgiving because I got to zone out, um, which was great. But I feel like this sort of streamlines these important historical events and distills them into this really stupid melodrama that is one-sided. And say what you will about, you know, Clint Eastwood is another kind of polarizing character. Mm -hmm. Um, Not a character, but, like, him as a person is kind of fascinating, especially over the last, you know, 30 years. um, With his political affiliations and the movies that he's been making recently. Um, But uh, with Letters to Iwo Jima and Mm -hmm. Flags of Our Fathers, he does something... very much smarter than what Michael Bay was trying to do with this movie. Um, Paco, in arguably a more sensitive way, too. It, Pearl Harbor seems like an insensitive way to address this historic event. That yeah, um, I mean, I, what do you think about that? Like, I, I I was curious what your thoughts, considering Paco hasn't really seen all of Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> On what level do you see this also as sort of a uh, Pearl Harbor movie as sort of a American propaganda along the same lines as Top Gun was, you know? Well, I mean, it, it deals with that same sort of like you have a free spirited pilot who, um, you know, is carefree and gets shot down and survives and then wants immediately to get back in the plane. I think it deals with the American idealism of that time period. Um, and it's a little naive in that, in that construct as well, but I feel that it, it ultimately is a, is a movie that is not like a feel good movie because, you know, ultimately I feel like the last third of the movie is kind of like revenge for Pearl Harbor with the Doolittle raids and it doesn't close up anything. And I think at the time when this came out, there were still a bunch of PTSD from this war and from the people who sustained injuries from this. Because, I mean, you know, I think the, mm-hmm. the event took 10, 12 minutes for Pearl Harbor to be bombed. All of these ships went down. I mean, we lost maybe 2,000, over 2,000 people. It was, like, close to 4,000. Um, well, I mean, including civilians, too. Yeah. And, I mean, Japan, you know, the Japanese numbers weren't as large. But, it, um, you know, I feel like a more interesting movie um, would have been, for one the whole triad love thing. I think we were talking off mic about a cuckold, you know, relationship yeah. between Ben Affleck and ben Affleck's totally Kate Beckinsale and the kid and him raising the kid. I fa- okay, let, let's just pitch this again. Trademark Cinemeca. Um, we restart Pearl Harbor two in 1970s. Ben Affleck has a beer gut. His love child, his cuck child from Josh Hartnett's character wants to, you know, 
join the army or make it Vietnamese. We should have it be Josh Hartnett in like Irishman de aging. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> but make it like Boyhood, where we film it over ten years, and so the de aging process has to age with. Or just shoot it like a normal movie because we're already doing computer magic. Okay. <laughs> like, uh, all right. Well. Okay. So, cuck child, all that stuff. Cuck child. Um. Yeah. We'll call it Pearl Harbor colon Chuck. Cuck, Chuck, Chuck child. Cuck child too. <laughs> yeah. Parabellum. Um. <laughs> you know, it's actually explained in John Wick Three what the parabellum <laughs> is. Um. I believe that was a they, trigger word. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. It's tied into one of the ancient Greek philosophers, and it's actually the most pretentious part of that whole fucking movie, which also has Halle Berry having dogs that attack people's dicks. Um, mm. Yeah, it's Monsters Ball. Okay, that that just decided it. We're not cutting that part out. No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the most uh, pretentious part of the movie. All right, this doesn't matter then. Yeah, no. Um, dicks? Yeah. Biden, Biden, Biden dicks. Sorry. Biden dicks. Hi. Twenty twenty. Tons of Biden dicks in this. Holy shit, dude! If fucking um, why can't I think of the guy's name? It's not Ed Zwick. It's somebody with a stupid name. Edward Zwick, who did like Last Samurai. And, no, uh, uh, the guy who did the uh, there were two guys that did the first John Wick, and then Zwick was made. John Wick was made by Zwick. No, it was made by who the fuck was it? Francis Ford Coppola. Twixt. <laughs> uh, Twixt. Hang on, hang on. Uh, I think that was a movie. Now, um, I could be misremembering this, but there's a couple of Twix bars in John... Dakota Fanning, or one of the Fanning God girls. You've seen Twixt? John Wick was made by a team, and then the sequels were made by this one guy who... Elon Musk. Uh, I mean, now... They're not threatening to uh, sue, you know, people who are saving children. Um, so, you know, they're heroes, you might There's say. There's some shade. Some Elon Musk, <laughs> Elon Dusk. You know, it's not like he's particularly litigious or anything. Um, and it's not like his spaceships work. Wait, what are you trying to find? Uh, David Leach. Oh, okay. Huh. And Chad Stahelski. Yeah. And Chad is the stunt person on the Matrix movie? They're right? both his stunt devils. Okay. And Chad um, directed the first one. Chad... And the second and the third? Or? One of them directed the second and the third. Um, of course a Chad would direct those. Chad... <laughs> I mean that with love, because those are, those are fun. I'm just, I'm just throwing myself some shade. Do you know what? The Virgin David and the Chad Stahelski. <laughs> <laughs> uh... But Chad did both. Chad did all of them, and they fucking rule. And if Chad wanted to do Joe Biden's ads, I'd probably vote for Joe Biden. I mean, at this point, guys, the guy's brain is melting in front I think, of us. Honestly, I think I think I think look here, guy. I hate fat. Listen here, fat. If I want to run the country, I'm going to run the country, all right, fella? <laughs> want to do push-ups? I can do push-ups. Yeah, dude, I can do more push-ups. I do more push-ups than you. You listen to me now. <laughs> I love that it looks like, and by the time this episode comes out, this is going to be no longer relevant, hopefully. It's going to be two fucking dementia-addled 
boomers with corrupt children running for president. Like that was great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm stoked. Meteor 20. Uh, yeah. 20. Michael Bay has. Oh, okay. Pitch. <laughs> yeah. Cinemecca again. Trademark. All right. Uh, it's election night 2020. <laughs> A meteor is coming. But the only people who will be saved will be the ones who ride in on their ballot meteor for 2020 <laughs> and then it turns into a, like an a rapture sort of thing where it's like left behind like but it's really the reverse left behind where they're on their way to the rapture which is the meteorite oh all right here's here's Give my me a hundred thousand million dollars <laughs> that's a billion dollars that's that's ten that's my dollars. short that's my longhand uh yeah. discussion of money <laughs> <laughs> all right here's Give my me pitch. pennies Here's my pitch. It's election night 2020. We nominate Bernie Sanders. And we don't all hope for an asteroid to kill us. And we get Medicare for all. We're not going to get no, anything on, maybe, we want. Maybe yeah. Bernie, Bernie, <laughs> stubs his, Bernie stubs his toe. That's the conflict. Oh, my toe. Uh, oh. My toe. I'm stubbed. <laughs> I don't want to be stopped. Then, oh, uh, you, have you never seen Curb Your Enthusiasm? There's tons of conflict in a Bernie presidency. That is true. That was, I think, his first role or his first uh, foray into the public spotlight was uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Bernie, right? Probably. Yeah, he's great in that. Show. Oh, he's he's amazing. Yeah. He's the, he's the oh. main guy. Yeah, I mean, he gets in these <laughs> funny, Larry. weird hijinks. Yeah. Oh, it's it's very. He sits funny. on Michael J. Fox. And oh, it's. <laughs> kind of offensive but it's mostly just funny oh yeah yeah he gives him that dr pepper and it blows up in his face and he blames michael fox like, they reunite seinfeld for some reason yeah yeah weird yeah okay what's guys. the deal with that <laughs> <laughs> so guys do you feel the burn <laughs> what's the deal the <laughs> what's the deal why All right. is it a bernie or is it a sandy <laughs> so we know jerry's a republican I'm going to go with Elaine is Warren. Kramer is going to be, who's the weirdest? Yang? Kramer's definitely in the Yang gang. Yeah, because he's like, I'll take a thousand dollars. It's easy for him. Wow. That's like getting unemployment without having to do anything. Right. So hold on, who who would Jerry vote for? Jerry's a Republican. Jerry's but a Republican? I like IRL or what? IRL. He's like super what? Republican. But he dates sixteen year old girls. That doesn't sound like any Republican I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's still gonna vote for Biden. Uh yeah, he might be that no, kind of Republican. He no, might no, be no, a no, never no, Trump no, Republican. No, he's yeah. the type who would say, Hey, you know, I really He's like David Frum. He loves invading foreign countries, but he just doesn't love the rude people. <laughs> No, he seems like the type to say he donated money to Elizabeth Warren's campaign, but then voted for Donald Trump regardless. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Good way to hide it. Um, but that oh, leaves George. George. Oh, yeah. George. Who would George, George be? Vote. <laughs> yeah, George is too. Yeah. If George is voting, who's the most George candidate? I feel like it's got to be what? Klobuchar. It's Klobuchar. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to be dominated. Oh, come on. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, dude, that's She's typical mean. George. She's got attitude. It's great. Did you guys hear that story? It's like super old now when we're recording about her eating a salad with her fucking comb. 
No. Um, <laughs> that's some serial killer shit. Are you I sure heard that's... about her complaining about a salad, what? but... No, so so this shit came out in that original New York Times report like eight months ago as of this recording. Uh, one of her staff brought her a salad but didn't bring her a fork on a plane. She yelled at the staff member so hard she like made the member cry or something and then pulled a comb out of her purse and ate the salad okay, with not, a comb. Not, not to be, not to be <laughs> devil's advocate. Quickly. But have you ever tried to eat a fucking salad without a fork? Yeah. Okay. And you true. had one job to get a, to get this person a fork. Yeah. You know what? And she's the, they're the one who had to eat with their comb. I I think I mean not to play you, the Lord's advocate. She should have brought her own fork. Thank yeah. you. Do carry on forks. This is a separate podcast. But if we're doing devil's advocate, one of or my personal Lords. pitches. One of my personal pitches. Pearl Harbor from the Japanese perspective only. Since I was thirteen. Salad is just nachos with vegetables. You should totally be able to eat. What? Okay. <laughs> I, hold on, I'm, I'm in this. No, I'm <laughs> it's, it's nachos as vegetables? Yes. Okay. Salad that is makes... the same concept. Instead of chips, you've got lettuce. Instead of queso, you've got dressing. Honestly, are you sure you're not doing a Seinfeld bit? It's no. Like, what's I the deal? Fucking... It's like, what's the deal yeah, with salads? It's like, it's like no, you got lettuce. My mom just nachos with lettuce. My mom used to yell at me because I would always eat salad with my hands. Hmm. Because it's I, fucking nachos. You know, no, it's, no. it's green nachos. No, you can't okay. pick up a leaf and just be like, oh yeah. Have you picked up a no, soggy chip? No, you know what? I'm going to. Yeah, it's the same shit. <laughs> but you're doing, you're not. Who's. Okay, that's also denoting that, like, you're asking for your nachos to be soggy. Well, no, I'm asking for my salad to be crisp. Okay, to be that's honest, really to be honest, I'm I'm oh, kind of agreeing. I'm agreeing with Paco on this one. Okay, <laughs> there have been guys. many there have been many a sad nights where I've been eating a salad, and you know, kind of sometimes I want to have finger food. Yeah, and sometimes like romaine lettuce has like a natural little taco shape. You can pick up some of the things you put on your salad, like mm -hmm. a little taco, look little tortilla, but it's made of lettuce. Guys, Jason, that is that is the definition of devil's advocate right there. <laughs> <laughs> you just being a bullshitter. <laughs> no, I swear. I literally I swear. It's never super eat... rational, super I tasty. I never forks. eat salad with a fork. Honestly, I like <laughs> If I'm at a restaurant or if I'm at work, yeah. I'll do it there. <laughs> because, you know, in public, to, yeah. no, I mean, to be honest, I love eye contact while I'm putting a piece of crouton deep in my throat while I just <laughs> lick my fingers on the way out. I love to sensually eat um, cob salads. Oh. Cob salads are those, like, ugly... I, go ahead. I was just about to be disgusting with what I do with cob salads, but go ahead. I, all I was going to say was just wedge salad, maybe. Because that's a hand salad... Thing, right? Every salad's hand salad. Every hand salad's a hand salad if you uh, if you want to participate. You know, uh, you macaroni salad. I mean, it's regardless of what salad you want. Potato salad. I've That's like to... every food's a finger food if you eat it with your fingers. Granted, mm -hmm. you do get to lick your fingers afterwards. Exactly. After I mean, you clean it's it too. If you got like Caesar dressing, it's salad's my fine. Favorite. Um, Dude. You gotta try it. It sounds like you guys talk me into Our sponsor Anyways, is Jolly Green Giant. <laughs> this has been <laughs> Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Pearl Harbor podcast. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe and tell us how much you uh, think about eating salad with your hands. Uh, next week, are we talking bad boys too? We're talking a bunch of bad, bad boys squared. The worst boys. Uh, see you then. See you then. I'm Jason Haskins. 
I'm Baco. See you later. Bye-bye.